Welcome to the Field Dynamics Podcast. We're here to facilitate inspiring dialogues about the nature of consciousness across disciplines, communities, and practitioners, all with a holistic perspective. From energy healing to somatic therapies, from neuroscience to meditation, we believe the most interesting things happen at the boundaries of disciplines. I'm Christabel. And I'm Keith. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Field Dynamics podcast. Today we have with us guest Matthew Wood. Matthew has been a practicing herbalist since 1982. He studied botany at the University of Minnesota, receiving his Master's of Science degree from the Scottish School of Herbal Medicine. He is an international lecturer and has authored 10 books on herbal medicine, including the Book of Herbal Medicine and the Earthwise Herbal Repository, both published by North Atlantic Books. Matthew has helped tens of thousands of clients over the years, many with difficult health problems, and has maintained a practice of traditional Western herbalism during a period when many others have turned to the exotic traditions of India or China. While Matthew believes in the virtue of other healing modalities, he has always been inspired to learn, preserve, and practice the tradition of herbal medicine descending to us from our European Anglo-American and Native American heritage. Currently, Matthew is a registered member of the American Herbalist Guild and teaches online through the Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism. So firstly, Matthew, a warm welcome today. Thank you. I wonder in starting if you could tell us a little of your personal journey into the world of herbalism and what brought you to this fascinating area of expertise. Yes, well, I would say everything started for me. My first spiritual experience was about age 10 or 11 uh, on what's called Rib Mountain in Wausau, Wisconsin, which is like 1,800 feet high. So it's like, is that really a mountain or not? It'd be like the only mountain in Wisconsin, just about. And we were, uh, it was uh, the weekend of Northern Half Yearly Meeting of uh, Friends or Quakers, and the Sunday school teacher, Dr. Francis Hall, who was a uh, soil science professor from the University of Madison, he took us out, took the class out on top of Rib Mountain. It was a beautiful sunny day. And I remember him kind of dancing from rock to rock. And he said all sorts of <clears throat> amazing things about geology and and the earth. And But this feeling kept on just emanating out of him. Nature is alive. Nature is alive. Nature is alive. And I knew it was true. And I knew I had to believe it right then and there. I knew I had to believe it or I would never know truth again. I would never, you know, if I doubted what was true, this was spiritual truth, then I would never have a chance again. So it sank down into me. And I knew I knew we were all related, as the Native Americans say. And I knew we were, I knew that, you know, if you hurt somebody else, the karma came back on you, you would feel it because we're all related kind of in that group soul of Mother Nature. And um, I do believe that's kind of our our true home, our spiritual home, It's or it's our soul's home. It's not maybe the same thing as the spirit. It's more like the, the soul, the world's soul. So that was the beginning. And um, I should say I was raised a Quaker 10 generations now. And so that was the inner life was emphasized um, for me. And that was natural. So when I was 
when I was 31, 20 years later, I got to um, uh, go to Madison, Wisconsin and visit Francis. And I found him there in his house. He was retired. His wife was dead. He was a widower by then. I told him how I had become an herbalist. And that was like based on this feeling that nature is alive, the herbs are alive, etc. And he said, you have chosen well. People crave that interaction. They have trouble getting there. So you will always be in demand. And I thought, who but a Quaker elder would tell you that that was a good decision? <laughs> yeah, so at any rate, I was by that time working at Present Moment Herbs in South Minneapolis, and I was learning herbs little by little by little. And I kind of had to cross into homeopathy and the Bach flower essences to understand herbs because I was attracted through this experience into the wisdom of nature tradition or the idea that, that nature is a living being, being and all the natural animals and creatures and, and um, plants within nature are alive. And even minerals and landscapes are in a certain sense spiritually alive, although maybe not quite in the same way. In fact, I've kind of come around to feel that Animals are more intelligent than we are. Yeah, I have a high regard for animals um, and uh, plants too. So, and humans, um, not only kind of flawed, but we're kind of hard to, to deal with too. So, <laughs> and I always felt that I worked for the plants first and the humans second. How big of a factor can herbal remedies be in one's health? Do you consider herbalism to be an essential part of holistic healing regimen or practice? Well, let's see. When I was young, I thought everything could be healed by herbalism and homeopathy. When I got older, I realized that exercise and right eating is the absolute minimum. That's really what you have to concentrate on. And then you can work with whatever healing modality fits you. So that could be body work, energy work, herbalism or homeopathy, or perhaps other things as well. Every symptom, every condition is is an inner voice from within, from the soul, through the body. I mean, there are injuries and things like that. Even those can speak to us. But every disease really and symptom is an ambassador from within that's trying to give us a message. And we want to learn from that and get rid of the symptom by learning from that. So yeah, I believe that herbs is one of the things, and herbs have the advantage because they personify the problem in a plant body that you're experiencing in a physical body. So too much cold or damp or wind and damp or whatever, just to talk about the weather, but also too much tension like agrimony, caught in a bind, and um, or blue vervain, the fanatic, too intense about things, or Oak fighting on against adversity, not never giving up, never succeeding. Those are Dr. Box readouts on those remedies. And I find that they correspond to the physiological level too. So we want to learn those lessons. I love this idea of the um, symptoms being sort of ambassadors from within, right? Connecting to that inner wisdom, that inner sentience, and also the uh, relationship to plants as representative, indicative of, um, you know, the issues and problems and, and bringing that representation in, in terms of the remedy. I'd love to hear how you go about treating someone as a practitioner. So what's your diagnostic process? What resources might you draw upon? Is it strictly herbs or might you include homeopathy or other methodologies? Yeah, I'd say about 
10% of the time I use homeopathy and um, I understand best the uh, homeopathic remedies that are herbs. And I'm kind of an old fashioned homeopath in that they've proven that has added a lot of new remedies to the Materia Medica. And yeah, herbalism is my main chosen thing. I do use some of the flower essences too, but I consider them interchangeable. Like say lycopodium and homeopathy, constitutional remedy. I usually use that as an herb, which not very many herbalists use, but I like using the herbal form and the taste often communicates a deep a deep feeling about it, but I use small doses like in homeopathy, like three drops, one drop, five to 10 drops and, or in the Bach flower essences. So I kind of go to that point where they all overlap. So that's my Materia Medica materials of medicine. And then how I take a case, I used to have a form and everything, but now I, after 30, 40 years, you just follow the energy you know i think you guys know that uh the next thing most important i always forget to get the date entry complaint or what can i help you with is a nicer way to say it you really got to get that down what is it you want fixed because you've experienced this too where we're part way through you realize oh what they really need is blah 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 or this is only one part of a bigger problem i remember one woman five or six things were wrong. She'd been to a separate doctor for each one. And I said, well, these are all due to heat. <laughs> and so we just got to treat that underlying problem. This is not five different problems. And and you've seen this many times. And so after 45 minutes, an hour there, you got a good case history, but there's five, six things going on. And you, and you know some of the remedies for some of it, maybe not all of it, occasionally all of it, even though you don't think you do. but but most of the time, you don't know all of what you found and what the remedies will do. You can't really pull everything apart. So you say, we got to cut down some of the trees so we can see what's left the other trees and come back in six weeks, eight, 12 weeks, something like that. I'd love to ask when you're working with someone, say how you might um, implement the the regime, the herbal regime. So to saints, tinctures, um, you know, different methods of delivering the herbs to the system. I like tinctures, less the teas and things. Tincture is easier and better and portable. You mentioned in your book uh, an interesting thing about treating the skin. I was really intrigued by this. You say how the skin shows the, use the quote, dragon tracks of disease. Can you tell us a little bit about how the skin is reflective of overall health and how it relates to this idea of the interior versus the exterior? The skin... In the old days, I always was taking the pulse and it was like, oh, I'd feel the skin. And then I noticed the skin would change when I got the right remedy. And if it's too dry, it'll get moisture. If it's too lacking in oil, it'll get oilier. If it's too lacking in water, it'll get a little waterier, but often both at the same time. If it's too damp, it'll be either too oily or too um, watery and there are different remedies for those and oily feels kind of tacky. And um, if you've done, well, body workers probably have felt all this. Um, I just was very impressed after a while. The skin always would shift when we got the right remedy. And this actually, Samuel Thompson, who was kind of the founder of herbalism in North America, his teacher, Mrs. Benton, the old widow Benton, she would actually give one remedy after another until the a sweat was raised. 
which in the days when everything was fever or stuck fever or malaria or something, that was actually pretty accurate. So I call this Mrs. Benton's Law. <laughs> and of course, many of the things you're sharing here, um, the skin, the tongue, they're, they're indications um, for constitution, which is a complex topic in holistic medicine. Could you tell us a little bit and tell the listeners, share with the listeners a bit about the basic background of why constitution is important, why it's important for people to understand their constitution? Yeah, well, I would say first, just most broad of all, there's like vata, pitta, kapha. Uh, but that's like equivalent to there's like vata, thin, kapha, thick, pitta, medium. And everybody is either is one of those. And people tend to follow whatever innate constitutional build they have. The thin people, as a friend of mine said, everybody either dries up, burns up, or melts. <laughs> so vata pitta kapha is very important, and it's also very justified. And there was work by William Sheldon, the psychologist who had over 10,000 different cases, whatever people, and determined how their constitution affected their health. He, he used the words ectomorph, mesomorph, endomorph. Well, he he speculated that the different organs, like when the viscera is more dominant, you get the endomorphic, the bigger constitution. When the nervous system is more dominant, they're thinner, they run around more, you know, and, and they lose weight, they're, they're thinner, and they don't have a strong digestive system. And then pitta in the middle, the heart is strong, the muscles, and yet they burn up. So all three of them are not, there is no favorable, you know, one's going to live longer than the other. So that's one view of constitution. Then there's like the homeopathic constitutions. Then there's like the Native American, the Indian medicine, which is where the person or the plant resembles an animal. So when the plant resembles an animal, that's called a spirit signature, and that's stronger. That kind of plant is a stronger medicine, and meaning it's more constitutional and deeper in a way, and in holistic and inclusive. Not all the time, but most of the time that's true. You know, there's no end. The Vata Kapha is all-encompassing. Everybody falls into one of those categories or a combination, but the other ones, they're kind of open-ended. You could just go on forever, and there's probably a possum constitution <laughs> and and then actually there's the people who are dominated by their injury where the constitution is less important where you got to treat what happened to them that became their constitution in homeopathy you got the lachesis the snake venom type where they they talk about their disease all the time and they identify with it and they've kind of become ingrained with it like sometimes you're not sure do they really want to be healed or not you know that's another thing you're sharing their um, homeopathic remedy, lachesis, the, the snake remedy, which is, is said to align to certain qualities that the individual is demonstrating. And so that's the like for like in homeopathy, right, for treating. Yeah, and, and those remedies can be constitutional or they can just be local organ remedies too. But usually when you need them, they're more constitutional. In 2021, recently, you published a book called The Extracellular Matrix, The Science of Healing at the Cellular Level. Really, fa really fascinating general subject. We could have a whole hour's talk on that. But I was just wondering if you could just give people a sense of what is this extracellular matrix and how can we think of cellular healing through herbal techniques? 
that idea, the guy who really pinned it down, who said, this is the matrix, this is how it worked, you can't argue with it, it's when we got proof, really, 1976, that was uh, Alfred Pissinger from the University of Vienna Medical School. He was a holistic doctor. In fact, that department was holistic. They had never accepted the cell theory, that the cell was the independent, the basic unit of life. They had believed in, uh, it was really more the circulation, the general, the environment of the cell. The first thing it does that's really important is it proves the basic premise of holistic medicine is correct, is scientifically proven now. And there is no question about that. Take a drink of salty water. The body gets the message right away. Every cell in the in the body looks up, oh, more salt. Every cell gets the message. Oh, 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 that, that happened. And because of the connective, this is what Pissinger showed, that all the cells are tied into a communication system called the ground regulatory system, which is shifts in electricity. So the cell is sitting there holding a charge and that message comes and oh, it changes. The charge changes. Very simple system, but the cells can tell everything that's important from that. On the cellular level, we are a whole. We are one organism. On the mental level, we think we're an independent thinker. Probably we aren't, but um, we think we are. But the the basic communication system is energy like that. And um, when they were doing the work, Pissinger and his co-workers, they got together with some anthroposophical doctors and talked it through. And, you know, the matrix was pretty much like the energy body or the most, you know, the closest, the energy body zeroing in on the physical level. It's the primal organ system, like when a multicellular animal first existed, everything from the um, sea slime to you and I all has the same ocean in it. All of us microorganisms, we all the same mother ocean, the same mother. And so that also that also is beginning to show the holism, the unity and and the same electrolytes and the same electrolyte communication as well. So like the cell salts in homeopathy, that's electrolyte communication. That's another ancient, uh, I don't want to say primitive because it's really not superseded. It's, it's necessary for us today. Like what we call bad blood or dirty blood, that's really the matrix. The blood doesn't get dirty, the matrix does. And one thing amazing, just to mention one thing that really astonished me was, so we're used to, okay, the blood is buffered, like it's acid levels, like 7.2 to 7.4 or something. And the urine, you know, may vary, but but the lymph is also very buffered like that. And in fact, oh, all this acid, alkaline, that's all nonsense. Well, I found that in the matrix, the acid alkaline level not only does it fluctuate enormously, but it has to because different enzymes work at different levels of of acidity, alkalinity. So this acid alkaline question is um, really interesting and more complicated. And it's not as like, oh no, you can't have you can't have an alkaline system. I want to change the topic slightly and shift over to to mushrooms actually. There's been a, a growing popularity in adaptogenic mushrooms such as reishi, chaga, turkey tail. Given that mushrooms are not, in fact, plants, how do they fit into a herbalist framework? Could you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on these fascinating species? Yeah, I'm not that good with mushrooms, but I can still talk about it some. So 
So first, all the mushrooms, the whole field of them, they all contain something called beta-glucons, all of them, from the little button mushrooms in the salad bar at the restaurant that look, you know, like, do I want to eat that? <laughs> to like the nice plump portabella, to like a hallucinogen, to like a shelf mushroom, to a mushroom that's going to disappear the next day. All of these things contain the beta-glucons. And the beta-glucons, like, are they're never digested. They scrape along the wall of the small intestine or large intestine, maybe to its stomach. And they send signals back and forth. And this is all also the emerging science of biofilms and the microbiome. So there's biofilms, there's a microbiome, there's a good bacteria, bad bacteria. They're all communicating through that wall into the matrix, and the matrix is sending signals back out. We know that in the matrix we've known about for 35 years or so, but the microbiome, some of these words were only standardized like 2005 and like very recently, 1990s at the earliest. And so we're still learning how to deal with that. Well, well, this seems to influence. So these beta-glucons send messages. They never are digested. They move on through the system, but they send messages and that enriches and helps our immune system. So all mushrooms have this. Then in addition, certain mushrooms have additional properties like Chaga is the only thing I've ever seen create miracles or like totally unexpected cures with cancer. I have seen that. Chaga has betulinic acid, which is um, in the birch tree too, and it grows on birch trees. It concentrates it evidently. Betulinic acid is an anti-cancer thing. And the more concentrated, like you could get it, you dig it out of the crotch of a tree where it was rotting in there. That's where the betulinic acid collects, I believe but the chaga does it for you. Then shiitake, meitake, they have other additional things. Um, lion's, bra uh, lion's brain, that's a good one. Lion's mane <laughs> crosses the brain, blood bar brain barrier and has good effects up there. Turkey tails has maybe the best accredited anti-cancer history. It's standard used all the time in Japanese uh, cancer therapy just across the board. They must grow tons and tons of it. You know, there's only about maybe five that are really well um, documented in science, maybe seven, eight, when we get out to the outer edges of, I mean, they have actually studied the little button mushrooms and they are good. So they like to stick with those, but there's also traditions and we have particularly strong from China with a little bit from Germany and Eastern Slavic uh, Europe, but mostly, um, mostly it's China. And here, like Native American, they didn't use the mushrooms hardly at all. They didn't like them. They didn't trust them. Could be poisonous. And English, most of the Europeans did not like them, but the Germans liked them, and then the Chinese liked them. So, so we do have different traditions on it. Yeah, and it's all moving along. This is like, you know, thirty years ago there was nothing here. So, a lot of things are changing in that dialogue, as well as with herbalism and uh, holistic health. This is almost like a of a question that's. Maybe this is too simple. If you were to recommend the th maybe three best herbs that could be taken indefinitely to improve health, what would they be? Okay, well, first I'd say there's specific herbs and there's general herbs or tonic herbs. And the specifics, they are like drugs. They do something specific and you can't take them all the time. That's like the homeopathic advice. You can't take the I, None of the homeopathic remedies really are tonics. They are all specific and they can't be taken forever but there are a few tonics that they they included in the homeopathic materia medica and they are herbal tonics like hawthorn for the heart you could take for years um 
milky oat seed or just oat straw. That's a tonic. That's like a mineral tonic, uh, which reminds us of um, seaweed. You could take seaweed forever. I think there's cultures that do. Western Ireland, et cetera, would be very important. Yeah, there are various tonics, nettles. Nettles will dry you out because it uh, increases um, kidney activity, which if you're too damp, that's good. But that one you can't take forever, but you can take it for a long time. That's like the seaweed of the earth, I call it. <laughs> it's got all those electrolytes in it. Certainly, almost all herbalists would say nettles. Um, alfalfa is another one with very little medicinal specificity. It helps with the digestion and processing of proteins, which is good. And I don't know that you can ever get too much of that particular compound. There's like one medicinal compound in it. Like yarrow has 80. So yarrow you don't eat all the time. But um, alfalfa you could. But so those very green things, and that gets us to St. Hildegard von Bingen, the green power. I don't know if you've been to any conferences like like you can look at me, I'm I'm like 69. I, I don't really look 69 necessarily. The herbalists, I've noticed like they usually look 10, 20 years younger than they really are. And this goes on and on. And finally, a friend of mine said, yeah, it's the green power that St. Hildegard described. <laughs> I, think, I think that's true. So I also think uh, just eating herbs, like culinary herbs, don't eat all the time, all the same ones, but but they're important. Parsley is really high in potassium, which we're short on. That's one I do believe in eating a lot of the time, not but not all the time, maybe 75% of the time. But so your culinary herbs, your um, you know, green smoothies, etc., your vegetables, but do eat the green power, absorb the green power from the earth. And that is a real thing, I really truly believe. There's herbs that are nice to have in your diet, but you wouldn't do them every day. And then there are a few that you could do. I would still say even those stop every once in a while. And Chinese medicine has more of them. Also, there's the adaptogens. But even some of them you can't take every single day. There are ones that most of the adaptogens have some special edge to them as well. We mentioned there in your bio at the beginning that you've helped tens of thousands of clients over the years. Is there a most common imbalance that you'll see in, in the average Westerner? And, and if so, what might be the, the sort of cause and the um, solution for that? Well, I want to compare notes here. Like when I was younger in the 80s, I had less skill, but it seemed like people were not as complicated. My generation, you're a little younger, your generation is like generation by generation, people have gotten weaker, I think. And they're harder to interpret and harder to treat. I do find children and animals are easier to treat. So part of it is just the uncomplicated mental life. Then I think there's all these chemicals in the environment. So I'm interested if that if that's something you guys have seen at all or think about. Or I see it as there being just so many more experimental unknown variables being introduced into people's lives and that and many of which are artificial or unnatural and the effects of them, we have no idea. And there's so many happening uh, simultaneously that things, things seem to be getting more complicated for people, both physically and psychologically. Yeah. And then there's the EMFs, which we don't know what to make of that. Um, yeah. There's a great book on EMS by Arthur Furstenberg, the invisible rainbow. 
Humanity and Electricity. I really recommend that book. And he really proves that EMFs exist. But he makes a really good observation. I'd never really hear anybody else that he said. And after World War II, they introduced like 80,000 um, chemicals into ourselves, our food, our world. Um, it's going to be, they're going to have dangerous side effects uh, if they don't already. So we're in a position to be able to observe some of this stuff that it's not just that it is having a deep effect. And you mentioned earlier about certain ways of looking at, I think it was in constitution, the idea that these um, original understandings are not in fact primitive and that it's very important for us to realize that these ancient sciences aren't about coming out of some stupidity, but rather looking at life and the body and the mind and health in a way that is in harmony with nature and is what material was available at the time for people to investigate this question, and that they're not less than approaches to health. They are the formative approaches that humanity has developed towards health. And now we're experimenting with all these different technologies at the moment, some of which may continue on indefinitely into the future, some of which may, we may look upon in the coming decades or centuries and say, wow, can you believe we did that? So who really knows what the end result is, but for sure, this is an experimental time and experiments have all kinds of uh, unforeseen consequences, which does seem to be a big source of the complexities of people's health and well-being at this time. And why it's so important that people like you and general, um, you know, traditional healers and alternative medicines are having a huge um, uptrend because it's important that we come back to our roots uh, or as you call them, folk medicines. Yes, I like that. We live in experimental times. That's really, really a good phrase. Uh, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> There's one question I'd like to, to ask, Matthew, released to what Keith has just shared. And um, you've written uh, before that nature is a, a living conscious being. Um, you've referred to it several times in this conversation. And uh, relating to what we're just discussing, do you see this current cultural movement towards or away from this ancient understanding? You know, we seem to be at this this time of change, this shift, and it's hard to read sometimes which way we may go. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and, and how you might recommend people connect in this way to nature. And if you think that that's an important step going forward. Well, I'm worried that there's like a split with one set of people wanting more and more to be automated, you know, that's, that's the artificial intelligence. Will it take over the other people feeling let's, we got to stick with the earth. I don't know if there will be a split, but that's kind of what I have suspected for a long time. I do know this, um, that the earth is getting more aligned as a consciousness. Like um, the vision that I had finally that I got for the future is the earth will be in the center of our hearts and our personal loves will be around that and we'll be attuned to that and that will become habitual and so that we are not doing things that are at variance with the consciousness and love of the earth. So that's what I think the future is for the people that want to be attuned like that. But I don't know that everybody does and I don't know how these changes are going to take place, you know experimental times. What are you interested in, in terms of the future, in terms of personal projects or 
uh, ambitions? What are you currently working on or looking to work on? Well, I'm trying to finish a first year program at my school, Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism.com. And then second year, and then finally third year, which will be more um, online clinical. There's that, and that's an awful lot of work. And I've written a lot for that. It's kind of funny because I have never felt a lack of inspiration, or it's more deeper than inspiration, just where I didn't want to write. I never felt that for like 20, 30, 40 years. I just have never felt that. I was writing as a teenager. I still remember the little black typewriter. For me, in the last month or two, I've experienced times when, well, I don't feel like writing. What, what am I going to do? Like, and uh, Or maybe I'll start writing about other things. But I got a lot of stuff written already. So thanks for asking. If people want to work with you, would you recommend the main uh, resource is through the Matthew Wood Institute site? Yeah, if they want to see me as a client, I still see people. I'm kind of semi-retired. That's uh, greenmedic at gmail.com. Because the Institute, they decided not to, um, <laughs> my handlers decided not to send people on to me because I have to do all this other work so much that um, they thought it was taking too much of my time. So people can look me up that way. Otherwise, uh, um, education about herbal medicine, we just got tons and tons of different options and things going on there. Right. And your school of herbalism, the website we have is the Matthew Wood Institute of herbalism.com. So for people who are looking to study uh, with you or through the, your teachings and your uh, texts, then that would be the source. We, uh, we want to just thank you for your time today and sharing all this wisdom about herbalism and different uh, related subjects. It's been really stimulating and uh, really appreciate your time and energy. Yeah. Good. Keep this going on and on. So thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Many thanks. Thank you, Matthew. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the episode. What really supports the podcast is providing a rating and review of the show on your preferred listening platform. This helps us get the message out to a wider audience. If the topics we discussed today appeal to you, do take a moment to subscribe. Lastly, we invite you to check out our website, fielddynamicshealing.com, to learn about our training programs, private session work, and to see how we're setting the standard in contemporary energy healing. Many thanks, and see you next time.